right. Well, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but sometimes the children's message is very applicable to adults, too. <laughs> and some of that we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. Um, one announcement I forgot to make, and it's weird having announcements. We have an announcement for a year. So um, that I forgot to make is uh, in regards to children's ministry is we've been working to restart the babies through first graders. And because that goes on during worship, we are not asking anybody to serve more than one week, uh, weekend a year, a year, a month. That would be nice, wouldn't it? A month. And, um, and so we're not going to ask, we're not going to um, double up for anyone. So we were at two. We could staff two weeks um, a month. And then we were quickly to three weeks a month. And we're only two or three volunteers away from all month. So if you are interested in volunteering in one of those rooms, uh, you can go see Deidre. And if more than two or three want to sign up, that would be fantastic because we really need more than just the minimum number to pull it off. Um, that means sometimes we have a fifth week of the month, and we really want to honor the, the service of those who are, are giving in that time and give them an opportunity to be in worship as much as um, possible next weekend. If you are interested, or if you have served in the past but you haven't gotten involved yet again, and you are not a mother, um, I would love to hear from you because we do have a couple of openings that uh, we need next weekend in the nursery, which is the little ones, which is a lot of fun. Um, but we're trying not to put moms in there because it's also Mother's Day. So if you are available and would like to do that, come see me or go see Deidre. And let's see if we can get that taken care of next week. And we're excited about where all that is going. All right. Uh, we are in part eight of a series called Rise Up. Now, we don't normally do series this long. Unless we're going through a long book of the Bible, uh, we typically try to keep them to around six weeks. The reality of this one is it keeps morphing in my mind and in the way that we keep uh coming back to it. And one of the reasons is because everything that we do and that we are as believers hinges on one event. And that is the event of Jesus walking out of the tomb. If not for the resurrection, none of this matters, really, does it? Now, we could make the argument that, well, we, if we were Jewish, then we could still be hoping that the Messiah would be coming. So it would still matter. But when we talk about our faith and our hope in Christ, none of that matters if Jesus died and stayed dead, right? He was just a good teacher. He did some good, incredibly impressive things in his life, but he's gone. So the early church didn't just get together on Easter and talk about the resurrection. They talked about the resurrection every time they saw each other. And it would be just as if anyone in our midst here died and came back to life. Do you think we'd be like, you know, we should talk about that once a year. Like we would talk about it all the time, wouldn't we? It would be such an, a big deal. And every time we saw him, be like, that's the guy who rose from the dead. I mean, it would be really incredible. So Christians have talked about the resurrection much more so than the cross. The cross only gains its power because of the resurrection. Even though the cross is typically the symbol of our faith, really it should be an empty tomb. Uh, kind of holding a, a tomb, an empty tomb around your neck on a, on a gold chain, it probably doesn't have the same effect. Of course, I don't know that a, a device of mass torture does that much either. But the resurrection matters. And what we know is that we are rising up out of a difficult season. 
We as a church are rising up out of a difficult season. We as a people are rising up out of a difficult season. You and your family are rising up out of a difficult season. Our college students, our high school students, all of our students who have been doing online school and all kinds of ways that are not the most effective for learning are rising up. And we're all hoping that things are, for the most part, going to return to normal. But the reality is we know that they're not going to return to the way they were before. You know, they, uh, psychologists tell us 30 days of a behavior, and you've locked in a new behavior. So we've had a year of that. So what does it look like for us to rise up? And we've been looking at different stories of resurrection in Scripture, but today I... I'm not going to share a, a specific resurrection story. I want to share a really impressive, incredible story that Paul shares uh, about a people that are changed because of the resurrection, and that resurrection caused massive change within their lives. Because ultimately, if Jesus walked out of the tomb and that power is within us through the Holy Spirit, which is what Scripture tells us, then we should be changed too. So if you want to follow with me, you can follow along on version. Um, you can also follow along just by opening your Bible to so 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at a story where Paul is sending a letter to this church that he started in Corinth that interestingly enough, a year before, Paul had shared a need in Jerusalem and they said, we want to help meet that need. Somewhere along the way, the church in Corinth kind of stopped raising money for this need in Jerusalem. And he sends this letter to them and says, hey, don't forget how excited you were about this and let's stay committed to this. And interestingly, he tells that church in Corinth a story about another group. And it's that story that we're most concerned with today. But before we jump into that, I want you to recognize kind of the context of what we're entering into here. So at this point of the story of the church, there, the church is spreading out throughout all of the Mediterranean. They are moving out for different reasons, uh, mostly because Rome is cracking down and we are beginning what has been termed and has become known as the diaspora or the great dispersion where the Jews in Jerusalem are spread out and Rome cracks down on Jerusalem because they're really tired of all the shenanigans and all the revolts and all the ways that they're not playing their role in the kingdom of Rome. And so the church is spreading like crazy. Two events are causing that. One, the leader of this group of zealots came back from the dead. <laughs> that causes things to spread. And two, because those people are being forced to go all over the known world at the time, and they're taking it with them. Now, interestingly, when Paul comes on the scene, what we're going to find are both of these groups of people that we're talking about, the church in Corinth, and then the church that he's probably talking about is the church in Thessalonica, or possibly the church in Philippi, most of them are not Jews. Most of them are Gentiles, and we have come into a period where there's been some tension and there's been some conflict between Jerusalem and these other new Gentile, what we would call them or Scripture calls them, believers. So much so that some of the Jews in Jerusalem are like, these are not real believers. These are not our people. These are not people that we want to recognize that Jesus is doing anything in because Jesus is doing things in Jews. And eventually the apostles come together in Jerusalem and they form this council and Paul comes in and he makes his argument that these people are experiencing Christ and the Holy Spirit just as much and that Christ came for all people, not just the Jews. 
And eventually this council in Jerusalem says, you know, you're right. This gospel is for everybody. So we have this group that's in Corinth that he's talking to in Thessalonica or Philippi, maybe Berea, in which he's telling the story about that at one time were not even claimed by Jerusalem. But Paul is saying there's a group of believers in Jerusalem that are really hurting right now and they need help. Now, what is that need? We know about this period, which is probably 15 years maybe after Jesus was crucified and was resurrected. What we know about this period of time is that a famine has come in. There's an increasing amount of persecution on the believers in Jerusalem. When persecution comes into a group of people, it tends to affect their livelihoods. People lose their jobs. People won't sell to them. People make their life miserable, and they fall into just terrible poverty. On top of that, you have a famine in the land, and they are not able to eat. Now, Paul has made it his point, and if you read through the epistles of Paul, what you'll find is that Paul over and over again is saying, you should care for the other churches who are in need, and often that was Jerusalem. Now, this church in Corinth, Corinth was typically one of the more wealthy areas and a place where some of the believers there had quite a bit to offer for someone who was in need. And they got really excited when Paul shared this with them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, this is like the first group who says, listen, we are going to, we're going to take care of this. These are, this is our family. This is important. We want to be part of this. And then somewhere between 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8, life gets busy. People kind of go about their way as we tend to do in our lives. And we kind of forget those people who are hundreds of miles away and we don't see them. So out of sight, out of mind. And Paul is trying to gently encourage them to remember what they said they wanted to do. Now he could do a number of things at this point to try to talk them into taking up an offering and sending it to Jerusalem, but he doesn't do a lot of the things that we do. He doesn't run a campaign. He doesn't guilt them or shame them or tell them they're not good Christians. Instead, he tells them a story, and we're going to pick up that story in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and we're for the most part today, we're going to go through this story, and then I just want to pull a few things out about it, but I want you to right off the bat listen for why are these people motivated this group in Macedonia, likely the church of Thessalonica, the church in Philippi, or Berea, those were kind of the, the um, churches, the, the Macedonian congregations that Paul has started. Listen for why they did this, and it comes really quickly in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also 
to us. This is how he starts the story. Now, there's a lot more to this story, and it continues through chapter 9, but this is where we enter in to this story, and Paul says there's a reason that these churches, who you actually got excited about this before they even did, but they took it and ran with it, and they, they busted all of our expectations. Now, a few things that he says is that they are undergoing their own trial. They've got their own problems. This is not a group of people that are just living well, and they've got some extra laying around, and they say, you know what, pass that on to Jerusalem. This is a group of people that are struggling in great poverty themselves. Now, interestingly, it also says this group is incredibly joyful. (laughs) So that poverty in and of itself does not require us to lose joy, nor does it require us to not be generous. As you can guess, we're going to talk for the next few minutes about how the resurrection of Christ fuels generosity. But before you tune out and think this is a giving message, generosity is expressed in many ways. And in my mind, there's no way forward for the church without it. We're going to talk about generosity in many ways. If we're going to understand that, perhaps we need to understand their motivation and what sparked generous spirits within them. The Macedonian believers gave in an abundance in the midst of extreme poverty. Verse 1 says he wanted them to know about the grace that God has given them. This grace is fueling generosity. Now, if we go back and we look at this word in the original language, this is the word charis, which means grace. And this is what Paul is saying has fueled or caused them to be so excited about this and to participate in living a lifestyle of generosity, even in the midst of great poverty. Now, if we go through and we do a word study, this word can be used for a lot of different things. But it is always used in in the sense of grace. But we understand that a lot of the original languages, whether Hebrew or Greek, they express many more thoughts in a word than we tend to do. (laughs) Like We don't have a lot of nuance in the English language. We have some, but not a lot. We kind of get to the point, and we've got something different to say about, you know, something different. But nuance in the Greek and Hebrew, it, it is ripe with nuance. So this word can be used in a number of different ways, but it is very often used as an unmerited gift. Something that is given to you that you didn't ask for, that you didn't need, that someone just said, I want you to have this gift or this grace that you have received is someone just saying, I want you to have this. They were receiving a gift. Now, There's a difference in an unmerited gift and a gift that requires someone else to reciprocate with a gift. (laughs) When we give a gift in order for someone else to give us a gift, this kind of quid pro quo, it is not grace. It is not charis because we are looking for something back from what we give. Like when we go and eat out at a restaurant if we can get into the restaurant, if we go and eat out and then we pay them, we are not giving them a gift. We expect a good meal in return, right? That's not grace. That's not charis. Charis is when something is given and we don't deserve it. 
There's another meaning for charis that we see throughout the New Testament, and it is the idea of forgiveness, grace that is given and forgiveness. And if you don't understand forgiveness in the realm of generosity, you're likely not someone who forgives freely because forgiveness is an expression of generosity. It is also one of the ways that we understand the grace that Paul is talking about that these churches are receiving. A third definition we often see for charis in the New Testament is it can mean goodwill, it can mean loving kindness, or it can mean giving someone favor. Another often defined definition of what charis or grace is. A fourth one is something that just brings joy or pleasure. Something that's just good, it's just sweet, it's lovely. These are the things that the church in Macedonia is receiving from God because it says this is the grace they have received from God. And then the fifth word that is often used and some maybe even in some of your Bibles is translated in this specific way is generosity. Now I'm bringing this up to you because I am absolutely convinced that if we are to believe the scriptures that Jesus did live and he did die on the cross and he was buried, and his heart stopped, and his lungs stopped receiving air, and his brain stopped functioning, and then he had life again, and he walked out. He is the Son of God, and when he tells us something's going to happen, it is going to happen. So when he said, when I leave, I'm going to leave a helper for you, and that helper is the Holy Spirit that is like me, is going to live within you and is going to help you in innumerable ways, including helping you to become more like Christ, to be transformed. We see that in the fruits of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit's going to do within you and help you to understand God's Word. And the Holy Spirit's going to intercede for you when you don't know how to pray and you're just you're just struggling to get by. And the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you so you understand what God is saying. Scripture even goes so far, we talked about at Easter, that this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, which is the Holy Spirit that is alive within you. If we believe that has happened, do we believe we are the most powerful people in the world? And if we were to take a poll of 100% of all believers, I guarantee that percentage of people that say, yeah, I feel powerful, is going to be low, very, very low. Do we believe this stuff to be true? It's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves moving forward in a culture that is increasingly not believing that this is true. Paul begins by saying they, out of their poverty, gave to these people that initially didn't even want to accept them into their body. And they did it out of their poverty because of the grace in which they received, which leads us to a question of, well then, what grace did the Macedonian churches receive? And when we read through those definitions and when we read through an understanding of the graces that are received from God to any believer, then we are still going to come down to two primary things in which they have received from God. And the first is forgiveness and salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, 
And the second is the receiving of the Holy Spirit that was in them, empowering them to become like Christ in the world. This is the grace that they have received. So if we tie that all together in a nice neat bow, what we say is because of the resurrection, we are changed to become generous. This is the story that he tells. If we read on down through 2 Corinthians um, 8 and we start at verse 8, then Paul goes on and he's encouraging them to follow through. Remember these things. He's telling them the story about the Macedonian churches because he wants to remember that they themselves have received these same graces and they at one time were as excited about these same graces that they had received and which they wanted to give to other people. And so he encourages them and he says this in verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you, which is really a great part because most of the time when we think of Paul, we don't think of Paul as someone who treads lightly. (laughs) Usually we think of Paul coming in with a sledgehammer or a two-by-four and clearing house, right? Like if Jesus had a cohort whenever he was turning over the tables in the temple, it would would be Paul if anybody else. That's kind of how we view him. In fact, a lot of people don't even like Paul, which I think is crazy, but they don't even like Paul because they feel he is so strong that he's not fair to the people he's being strong towards. But we see so many facets of Paul throughout his letters, and we find one here that if if we were really to translate this in the understanding that he was trying to convey, he was basically saying, listen, please don't hear me trying to shame you. Please don't hear me trying to force you to do this thing. I, I'm just, I'm telling you how I, how I feel and what I think. But this is really in your court. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. In other words, are you experiencing the same grace the way they are? Because this is the way it's supposed to work. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Which, again, shows that Paul's not just talking about money here. Because clearly, we didn't all become rich when we believed in Jesus, right? I mean, some of us probably went to a church that told us we would be rich if we believed in Jesus, but it didn't take long to realize that's not how this works. He's not really talking about Jesus became poor so you could be physically, materially wealthy. He's talking about in the way you live your life. You'll be rich in the way you live your life. Verse 10 says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but to have the desire to do so. The way they had set this up was over the next year, you guys are going to raise this money, and we're going to send it to these people who can't eat and they can't live and they're being persecuted and they're suffering. And they started and then they stopped. And he said, you were the first to do this. In verse 11, he says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Now, Paul then follows up with some really interesting principles for generosity. And as I continue, again, I want you to remember We're not just talking about giving money. Like, that's an important part. And quite honestly, this last year, you guys have been so incredibly generous. Like, I, we shut down for two weeks for, to flatten the curve in March of last year. I mean, I, I didn't tell many people, but I was like, I I think this might be it for our little church. (laughs) 
And you all, we are in such a stronger position today than we were before the pandemic. And it's because of your generosity. So please don't hear this. What I'm trying to tell you is a call that you better start writing some checks. That is not my heart. Although there is a part of that for the faith that I do too. That is not what Paul is really trying to just communicate here, even though this example is monetarily. There's a there's a way of living generously in the world with our spirit, with our relationships, with our kindness, with encouragement. There is a way of living generously that all believers are called to. And of course, financially is part of it. Please don't just dismiss what he's saying because of that. All right. I finished the work. And then he goes on in verse 13 and it says, here's some principles for living generously that we're going to glean. But this is what he says to them because he knows they're in poverty and he knows they're struggling. And it speaks a lot to why we often are not generous to other people. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed. In other words, he's saying, it's not that we want them to to be able to eat well while you starve. We don't want you to give what you have so you don't have anything. Now you're in as bad a shape as they were, and now they're better off than you because you gave them this gift. He said, that's not what I want to happen. We're not trying to rescue our favorites here. There's There's a bigger plan in place. But he says, but there might be equality. Can you find or think of any other places in the early church where the scripture tells us that they worked hard towards equality? Can you think of any? Think in Acts 2, where they sold whatever they had and they brought it to the church and the church spread it out so that none among them had any need. So this is a lifestyle that they've chosen and they have expressed as a result of the way they're responding to the graces that they have received. He says, it's not that we want you to be, to, for them to be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn the plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. These are some incredible principles about generosity that we don't often teach within the church that we should. The first one is this. Give what you can to meet the needs of others without being in need yourself. There are other places in Scripture that bear this out. For example, the parable of the widow's might. When Jesus talked about this woman, and listen, she didn't give much. She gave what she had, and it was great. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart that is changed by Christ. Give what you can to meet the needs of others without being in need yourself, which begs the question then, so what do I need, right? Doesn't that come back to where we are? You know what I need? I need I need another vacation, right? I just went on vacation. That's probably not a fair example. You know what I need? I need a new wardrobe. I, you don't understand. I've been wearing this for the last year. I need something new. So it, it certainly comes to the question of what do I need? But the point is that we are trying to help others who have less than we do. Not that we somehow have some spiritual 
favor from God in heaven because now we've got nothing and now we're starving. That, that is not the point of generosity so that we can just say, hey, look, Jesus, I am starving now and I'm sending everything I have somewhere else. That's not what he's asking of us. That's why he says, give what you can. Jesus talks specifically about this in Matthew 6 and when he says this, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. In other words, what are the things you think you need where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he lays this bomb down for everyone to take in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> our hearts should be changed, shouldn't they? The Son of God came and he walked among us and he died on a tree and then he rose again, shouldn't that change us? Paul's saying, yeah, I think it should. Second principle of giving that he says is that God intends for us to take care of each other because he says that the goal here is that you take out of your plenty to give to those in need so that when you're in need, when they have plenty, they give you. So you're taking care of each other. Now we see also this throughout the New Testament. And we see it time and time again where Jesus is saying, you're purpose is to love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and then you are to love your neighbor as yourself. He says you're, you're to carry one another's burdens. When we go back through the one another's, there's so many one another's about how we're supposed to care for one another. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, the point is, is that when they're in need, you care for them, and when you're in need, they care for you. I, this is one of the reasons that Paul says that marriage is like Christ in the church, a mutual submission to one another because you care for each other's needs. That's how we mimic it. One doesn't lord over the other. We mimic taking care of each other just as Christ is taking care of us and just as we are called to take care of others as well. The third thing that he shares is that he ensures there is enough. There's enough for this. Which leads us to a conversation we can't have completely today because I'm about out of time and I still want us to take communion together. But it is the idea of scarcity versus abundance. There's not enough. I have to hoard what I've got because if I let go, I'll never have enough. Paul says there is enough. You can be generous. We pick the story back up in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the, the uh, awkward complex that we often have when we talk about spiritual disciplines. Like, if you don't read Scripture, and you don't spend time praying, and you're not generous to your neighbor, you cannot possibly be following Christ can't do that. However, if you read scripture and you pray and you give generously because you are shamed into it, it has no spiritual value whatsoever. So that awkward place that we find ourselves is and is in is in declaring this is what it looks like to be healthy and to grow and to follow Jesus, but at the same time you the only motivation that actually unlocks that power in your faith in Christ is when you're motivated to do it because of what Christ has done for you. 
I want to read because I want to know what he has to say. I want to pray because I want to spend time with the one that is the most beautiful relationship I have in life. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure buried in the field. He is that thing that above all other things is worthy to have my life wrapped around. Now I read because I want to read. I pray because I need to pray. I give because I have received and I must give. How can I not? How can, how can I take what's been given me and just keep it? I can't do that. You see the difference? You see that awkwardness that we often have within the church? That's what he's saying here. Decide what you're going to give, but don't do it reluctantly and don't do it out of, under compulsion or out of shame or out of guilt or out of, I'm going to read who gave last month and if your name's not on it, we're going to stand up in church. You know, I went to a church one time, and they passed the offering plate. We should do this here sometime. They passed the offering plate early in the service, and then they had their treasurer count it in the middle of the service, and then their treasurer came up at the end of the service and said, it's not enough. And they sent it back through. Listen, that, that's some administrative machine work right there. And in addition... When they sent the offering plate around, they said, now, if you're a tither, stand up. And we were guests. We were guests of this church. And I was like, um, I don't know what to do here. Because I want to stand up. Because I don't want to not be standing up, but I'm not a tither at this church. And quite honestly, after this experience, I don't think I ever would be. And it was incredible how many people stayed seated. <laughs> saying you can't you can't practice generosity because you're guilted into it there's only one motivation that unlocks the power of generosity and that motivation is that we have received a grace from god that is the motivation Each of you should give, verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, he's going to provide the ways that you're going to be generous to others. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, and Bread for food, that's God, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will be result will, will result in thanksgiving to God. In other words, God's going to give you the resources for which you need to be generous to others. And if that is encouragement, listen, I, I know a lot of people that are down right now. De- de- depression is up. Discouragement is up. Relationships are struggling. Our threshold for encouraging, which literally means to take some of my courage and give to someone else, is low. What God is saying is, I will give you what you need to be able to share that with somebody else. But you have to share it. What would it look like for you to walk up to somebody and just randomly give them a compliment? Do you think they would, like, smack you in the face? It never happened to me. Here's the amazing thing. Emotions beget emotions, right? Whatever you put out tends to come back to you. So if you're a jerk, guess what happens when you put that out to somebody? They're a jerk, right? If you put anger out at somebody, what do they put out back at you unless they, are, unless they wilt? They put anger back at you. 
When you encourage somebody, now there are some people that are just so messed up. Like they get mad if you try to say something nice. There are those people. But for the most part, people, their whole countenance changes. Their face changes. They glow. When you put out encouragement and praise and it tends to return. It's this amazing thing that happens when people have committed to taking care of each other, not making sure they themselves are taken care of. It's an incredible thing that he promises. And he says, God's going to give you all the resources for which you're going to be able to do this. The question I could ask, and I don't want to know the answer, is this. Are Christians, by and large, known for their generosity? don't want to know the answer to that. Some, absolutely, some of the most generous people I know are faithful followers of Jesus, and they make it known. Absolutely. But are we as a whole, does the world look at us and say, you know who are generous people in the world? They're generous with their praise, and they're generous with their love, and they're generous with their encouragement, and they're generous with when the people are in need. It's those Christians. Is that what the world says about us? I don't think that's really the reputation we have. What if we did? So how do we apply this? What do we what do we do with this? I think one of the things we do is we recognize with our things that we have to hold loosely to the things that are not eternal. Loosely, very loosely. Right? This shirt is not gonna last. I'm probably gonna outgrow it, you know, because I can keep getting taller. I'm probably going to outgrow it, or I'm going to run it through the wash too many times, or I'm going to get bleach on it, or it's just going to get a hole. Sometimes some of my shirts have holes in it. You all know this. Like, I keep stuff. I keep stuff. It's like, you know, you got a hole in that. Oh, I need to do something about that. But I'm not getting rid of it. You know, I, I do that. I keep stuff. Hold loosely to the things that are not eternal. I would say to our young people, Choose your friends by how generous they are. I, I don't mean all your friends, but I mean your close friends. How generous are they? How encouraging are they? How much do they try to add to people's lives versus suck the life out of somebody for their own benefit? That's hard when you're young, isn't it? Even when we get old, we still struggle with that. You're looking for a spouse. But don't date somebody who's not generous. Because <laughs> a person who's not generous will not be generous once you get married. What does it look like for us to do that as a church? And one of the things, I guess, unspoken things I've committed to over the years at Journey is we're not going to guilt people into doing anything here, which means a lot of things don't get done. They say effective leaders know how to motivate people, but most of the time when I sit in leadership talks, not always, and not all good leaders are this way, of course. But there's a lot of guilt in leadership to get things to happen the way they want. We've chosen not to do that. And it's probably kept us smaller and kept us from doing some of the things we might want to do because ultimately we rely on the generosity of people that have been changed by Christ. 
It's one of the reasons I don't often go and ask people to do something in the church. I have two problems with requiring someone to come ask you to do something in the church. Number one, that puts your obedience to God's call in the hands of someone else. And I don't feel like I can hold that position for you. I can't determine. I, first church I ever pastored, um, one of the deacons came up to me. Um, this was my interview Sunday. And he said, can you look around the room and can you tell what each person should be doing to serve in the church? And I was like, <laughs> oh, are you serious? I thought he was joking. He was serious. And I said, no, I can't. I don't think he voted for me be honest, but that's not my place. The second thing is this, super refined, organized church community that is led by principles of business administration rather than the power of the Holy Spirit is something other than the church in my mind. That doesn't mean, if, like if I come ask you to do something, please don't pull this sermon up. And fast forward to this moment and say, you said you wouldn't do this, but I'm telling you, for the most part, we don't do this. That's why we say we're going to have two weeks of children's ministry, and then three weeks of children's ministry, and then four weeks of children's ministry, and we're only going to provide what we can do. What we can do. And we're going to feel good about it. It also means in the church in this transitional time, you know what generosity looks like for me? Patience in a transitional period. When people are moving about and changing priorities and figuring out what they're going to do and new people are coming in and old people are going out, patience as we move through this transitional period, that's generosity. You've seen, some of you have been here a while. Like This is the best this place has ever looked, right? You know, most of that is out of separate generous gifts from people outside of tithes and offerings. Like people have been extra generous to do some of these things. Like these are still just building blocks. They are the framework by which the real work is done, and the real work is relational. And it means when a guest walks in, even when we're uncomfortable, we go to them. And we say, you matter. You know what? I don't know you. I don't know you from anybody. But you matter to us. That's what generosity looks like. There's so many ways for us to share compassion. You know, I, I, these masks sometimes, some of you have asked, we weren't gonna, I wasn't going to say anything about masks today, but um, so we are kind of backing away from the expectation of masks. If you want to wear a mask, you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. Um, I will probably, you'll probably still see me, see me wearing a mask, not because I feel like I'm going to get sick. I've been vaccinated. I've already had it. I feel like I'm a double whammy of, like I'm one of the safest people. I could probably spit in your mouth and you'd be okay. I promise I won't do that. All right. I promise I won't do that. But I think I could pull it off and you wouldn't get COVID. That's, you know, I'm like triple, triple shot. Okay. On this thing. And I hate masks because I wear glasses. Can I get an amen from our glass-wearing mask wearers? I hate them. But you know what? For me, there are times that this is generosity for me. And I recognize some people, they're nervous. They may be medically fragile. Deidre works, she's vaccinated because she works with medically fragile children. 
I mean, I, I didn't even want the vaccine. I, you know, I'm hoping it's going to make me smarter and younger and more built, and my hair's going to come back in the front, and it's going to turn dark again. I'm hoping that that's what it's going to do, because, you know, I've read some articles online that says it'll do things like that, and I trust them. But uh, I wouldn't have gotten the vac- vaccinated. But I don't want to be responsible for giving it to somebody else. That's for me. I'm not saying that for you. It's not a political thing for me. I'm saying for me, that is an act of generosity for me because I care about people and I want them to see that, right? That doesn't mean I'm going to wear it forever. There are many ways for us to demonstrate generosity to people. And let me just end by saying, I really don't think there's a way forward for the church if we don't radically share generosity with the world. We don't radically love them. If we don't radically care for them when they're in need. Our service here, every person who serves here is is generosity. It's generosity. I mean, I don't know of anybody that's serving because they're guilted into it. If they are, I'd like to find that out. But when we serve, it's generosity. When, when you drop your kids off and someone's there to receive them, they're being generous. When you take time and you had a hard week and you show up and you're holding a crying baby and you're like, oh, my gosh, I need, to, need a nap or something. I need to get out of here. That's generosity. And you get to give them back, too, at the end of the hour. Or a little longer when the preacher goes long like today. <laughs> Let me leave you with this question. And then we're going to take communion. And I want us to take communion in a special way. We've got one more song. You can just come up. At the end of the song, I'll lead you through taking this, and then we'll be dismissed. But you can come up during this song and get this. And I just want you to ask yourself, what are the graces that I have received from God? like this, these Macedonian believers? Is it expressing itself in generosity in my life? How can I do that? How can I be generous? For those who are wondering how to give, we stopped passing the bucket, and you guys have still given. It's been incredible. If you want to give, there's a bucket out when you, on your way out when you walk out. It's a gray paint bucket. You may think, why did somebody leave that gray paint bucket there? That's where we take our offering out. So you can just drop it in there if you want to give. But if you don't and you're not able to give, okay. We love you. We want you to be a part of us. What does it look for us to show the world what real generosity looks like? Father, God, I, I thank you for this story and for these Macedonian believers. I thank you for the Corinthian believers. Oh, they so mimic my own life. I get excited, I get started, and then all of a sudden I stop and I forget what I was doing. God, I pray for this group of people in this room is that what's happening within us is real. It's not contrived, it's not organized, it's not planned, but it is you at work within us. I pray that generosity would be a continuing earmark of who we are as a people. Father, I pray that that would be because of what you've done for us. The grace we've received, the gift we've received of the Holy Spirit, the gift we've received of your love and forgiveness. Father, let us represent your generosity well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.